the birds and bugs and bees roaming around and living in the beautiful summer air. Tex thought that was the strangest thing he'd ever seen. So don't we go near that house. There's a wicked woman in that house. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. Going to hear stories this hour from Donna Washington and Anthony Bircher. Liz Weir will join us with a story from Ireland. We're going to hear some cowboy poetry from Joe Harrington. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Lacey Ivey. Lacey, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. So good to be back. And let's talk a little bit about Tex Buys a Dream. Yeah, so this story is by Laura Deal, and it's about a man named Tex, and he has a wife, and they kind of live in really rough conditions where, you know, you wish you had a little bit more than what you have, but you're kind of happy with who you're with and everything, (laughs) but they kind of wish it'd be a little better. Times are rough, and he's doing any jobs he can to just kind of make it by, and he has a friend who tells him of this dream that he had where this little bee told him to go and dig by a bush behind a house and he'd find gold. And his friend's like, yeah, that's crazy. But Tex asks his friend, he said, can I buy this dream from you? And I'm going to go find that because that's, that's amazing. And so it's just about him chasing after this dream that he yeah. bought from his friend. And you'll have to see if and, he finds it. And that's what I love about the title of this story. It's, it's because it winds up not being so much about buying a dream like an aspiration or a goal. It's mm-hmm. actually buying it like an actual dream. Yeah, yeah. Laura <laughs> <laughs> K. Deal, the Colorado storyteller, is going to tell this story for us. Tex buys a dream here on The Appleseed. I want to tell you the story of a man named Tex, a hard-working cowboy who lived in the late 1800s in Colorado. He'd come from Texas on a cattle drive with his friend Bob, and the rancher who had bought the cattle had about two months' work for him, and in that time, Tex managed to fall in love. There was a young woman named Kate who worked there at the ranch as a laundress. Kate fell in love with Tex, too. And so they got married. Now the owner of the ranch valued Kate's hard work so much that he offered to let them stay in a little house that he had down at the corner of the property so they could live there together. But those two months went by, and then Tex didn't have any more work. So he went out looking for a job with just a few coins in his pocket. He was very sorry to leave Kate behind, but he had to do what he had to do. His friend Bob went with him. The second day that Tex and Bob were out, it was a hot, muggy day with the sun so bright they had to squint. Along about midday, they came to a stream shaded by cottonwood trees, and they decided to take a little break and let the heat of the day ease off a bit. They let the horses graze, and Bob fell asleep right away, but Tex... He just sat there thinking about Kate, about the life they might have together and what he could do to keep her safe and happy. What he wanted more than anything was a little ranch of their own with cattle and horses and dogs and maybe some chickens. He knew it would be a lot of hard work, but neither he nor Kate were afraid of hard work, so that would be no problem. 
Ah, he was dreaming, though. How would he ever get that kind of money? As Tex sat there, daydreaming, all of a sudden, Bob snorted. Tex looked down at his friend and saw a little bee fly out of Bob's nose. The bee flew away to the north. Tex thought that was the strangest thing he'd ever seen. And then Bob sat up and said, Oh, I had the weirdest dream. Well, what'd you dream? I dreamt there was this bee that told me to go to this ranch. Oh, what was it? The richest ranch west of Denver. Yeah, that was it. And, and there'd be a pine tree growing behind that house, and next to that pine tree there'd be a rabbit brush bush all in bloom. And if, if I dug down next to that rabbit brush bush, I'd find me a jug full of gold. Now Tex, he heard gold, and his ears perked right up. A little shiver started going down his spine. Really? You gonna do that? Bob said, what? No, it'd be crazy to go chasing off because of a strange dream. I gotta find me a job. Tex said, I tell you what, I'll buy that dream from you. What do you mean you'll buy my dream? What kind of fool talk is that? Tex reached into his pocket and pulled out a whole dollar. Back in those days, that was a lot of money. In fact, it was all the money Tex had saved toward buying a place of his own with Kate. But he said, Yep, I believe in it. I want to buy that dream. Well, Bob rubbed his head and wondered if he was still dreaming or if his friend had gone clean off his rocker. But a dollar was a dollar. Well, I hate to take your money, but if you're serious, I won't argue. So Tex bought that dream, and he set out right away, heading north for Denver, looking for the richest ranch west of the city. He made his way through the mountains and hardly took any time to sleep or rest, just hurried on thinking about that dream. And as he got into the hills west of Denver, he started asking around, what would be the richest ranch in these parts? didn't take long for people to point him to Witta Johnson's ranch. They all said pretty much the same thing. Yeah, Witta Johnson, she's the one with all the money, but she's tight about it. She probably won't be hiring. She's as likely to give you a tongue lashing as anything just for showing up at her door. Well, this didn't worry Tex. A tongue lashing he could take. So along about dusk, he went up to Witta Johnson's ranch and rode on up to the big fancy house. Oh, it was bigger than most churches he'd seen. He tied his horse at the rail and knocked on that door like he believed it. Witta Johnson opened that door herself, and she was a tiny woman all bone and grit. She glared at him and said, I ain't hiring. Tex said, Oh, no, ma'am, I didn't come about a job. Well, what are you wasting my time for, then? Well, you see, it's like this. I just want to ask you if you have a pine tree behind your house. She looked at him. Well, yes. And is there a rabbit brush bush all in bloom growing next to that pine? Well, yes. Why do you ask? See, I had this dream. Well, I didn't have the dream. I bought the dream. But this dream told me if I dug down next to that rabbit brush bush, there'd be a jug full of gold. There'd be everything I need to start my life with Kate. Really? Widda Johnson started thinking. Now, she'd never been adverse to having a little more gold, and he did know about the pine tree and the rabbit brush bush, and it was blooming out of season, so that was a little odd. She said, I'll tell you what. It's getting on toward dusk. You go on down to the bunkhouse and get yourself some supper. 
You can stay there tonight, and in the morning we'll go see about this dream of yours. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Oh, bless you. This is great. And he went off, so happy to have a warm meal and a place to sleep, and excited about the morning. He slept that night so peaceful. Winnie Johnson, though, she didn't sleep. She paced back and forth, and then she finally went and woke up her oldest son, Russell, and she said, There's probably nothing to it, but if there's gold under that rabbit brush bush, I figure it's on my property, so it belongs to me. And you're going to inherit some day, so you're going to come dig. Russell said, Yes, Mama. So he got the shovel, and she got the lantern, and they went out there by the rabbit brush bush. He started digging, and the ground that was usually so hard, it was soft and easy, just like it was meant to be. It didn't take very long before his shovel hit that jug, just sitting there in the earth. Witta Johnson, she held that lantern high and pulled the cork out of that jug. A little bee flew out, circled the lantern once, and flew away. When Witta Johnson looked in that jug, she started to laugh. That jug was plumb empty. Russell said, What are you laughing for, Mama? There's no gold. But she said, This will be the best joke ever played on anybody. They put that cork back in and filled up that hole. She couldn't wait to see the look on Tex's face, and she stomped on the ground so it wouldn't look freshly dug. And then she went to bed. In the morning, she went out there with Tex. Tex started digging, and that ground moved real well. It didn't take him very long before he got down to that jug. The dream was true. He was so excited. He reached down and pulled that cork out, and what do you think was in there? Well, it was empty. Now Tex, he couldn't believe it. He realized what a fool he'd been to give his money to Bob and come all that way to dig up that jug and find out the dream had been a lie after all. He apologized, all sorrowful for wasting Widow Johnson's time. He got on his horse and rode away. Widow Johnson, she didn't really think it was funny anymore. This young man had been so earnest and so disappointed. And Tex, he was such a straight shooter, it never occurred to him that Witta Johnson might have dug that jug up first and taken the money. No, he just thought about how he was going to tell Kate that he'd spent that whole dollar for nothing. As he rode home over some of those high mountain passes, he looked down and thought about not going home to Kate at all. But he knew he couldn't do that to her. He thought about making up some story, but... He couldn't come up with anything but the truth, which didn't patent him in a very good light. It took him three days to get back to that ranch where they had their little house. He got there about midday, so he thought Kate would be up at the bunkhouse doing laundry, but no, she came running out of the house. She said, Tex, Tex, you're home. Come on, you won't believe it. She didn't look like she was hurt or anything, but something was the matter. He jumped off his horse and went into the house holding her hand. She opened up that door, and on the floor of their house there was gold. Coins everywhere. Tex said, Where'd all this come from? She said, You're not going to believe it. It was about three nights ago I was asleep, dreaming about you, and I woke up to a sound like a swarm of bees up in the attic. I got up and opened up the trap door to the attic, and this one little bee came flying out, flew around me and then flew off, and a moment later, all these gold coins came pouring out all over the floor. I left them here so you could see. 
I just know you're not going to believe it. But the truth was, Tex did believe it, and they bought their little ranch, and they had cattle and horses and dogs and chickens and some beehives. And from that day forward, their lives were as sweet as honey. The story was Tex Buys a Dream, told for you by Laura K. Deal, a storyteller from Colorado. I've been listening to it not only with you, but with one of our assistant producers, Lacey Ivy. Lacey, that's a great story. It's so good. I think it's just so fun to listen to. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, uh, the last time I heard that, uh, 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 a thing happened in the life of my family between the last time I heard that story and this time I heard that story. Oh, really? <laughs> and that thing is that our daughter became a beekeeper. Interesting. Yeah, so suddenly we have bees in the yard. And and uh, so, so uh, when I listen to that story, suddenly there's all this richness that, that wasn't there last time I heard the yeah. story, right? As I have gone into that, I've gone into that hive. I've I've looked at that hive, right, with, <laughs> with with my daughter as she as she pulls out the the frames of bees, and we see them hard at work doing their thing. And of course, the sweetness of the honey that comes from that hive. Uh, it's amazing how you can. I guess I'm looking at it as an example of how you can hear a story uh, more than one time, right? And come to it with a different perspective every time as your own life experiences grow, right? Yeah, I've done that so many times. I can't even remember. Like, especially with movies or books or something, those kind of yeah. stories, I, every time I watch them, and especially the older I get and the more things happen, yeah. they are just different every time. Stories are great to come back and back and back to. That's an example of a great one. Laura K. Deal with Tex Buys a Dream. Lacey, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's a whole lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on The Appleseed today. Uh, A moment ago, if you're just joining us, you heard a story from Laura K. Deal called Tex Buys a Dream. Stories from Anthony Bircher and Donna Washington and Liz Weir coming up, even a piece of cowboy poetry from Joe Harrington. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here is a memory of mine. In fact, it's a memory about hanging out with giraffes, and it's today's entry in the radio family journal the radio family journal with sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it on the apple seed a few years ago i was asked to perform some stories and songs at the zoo They got a big amphitheater there where they do bird shows and stuff. And they asked a couple of storytellers and songwriters to do a show there during the summer for kids and their parents. I took my two-year-old son along with me, thinking that maybe we could check out the animals after the show. But the show lasted right up until dusk, right up until closing time for the zoo. So I promised my son we'd come back again. And we began loading our gear onto the golf cart that was sent to take us back to the car in the parking lot. But the guy driving the golf cart asked us if before we went to the car, we'd like to get a golf cart tour of the zoo to see the animals. Are you kidding me? It was great. 
We had the place to ourselves. Animals who had lain around all day in the sun were just getting more active in the cool of the twilight. It was the best visit to the zoo ever. And seeing the animals, especially the giraffes, brought back a memory. Who doesn't love to go to the zoo, right? I mean, where lions and tigers and bears are just the beginning. Me, in my most fervent zoo-going days when I was a kid, I loved the giraffes best. Those long necks, those long legs, those long tongues, I loved them. And at the zoo I visited most as a kid, the giraffe enclosure had a kind of skyway in the middle of it, a walkway that went across the middle of the enclosure at head height head height for a giraffe. You could walk out on that skyway and look those giraffes right in the eye. And to make getting up close and personal even more attractive to the giraffes, feeding cages had been installed on either side of the walkway, presumably out of reach of the visitors, but head height for the giraffes, filled with hay and carrots and other goodies for the giraffes to eat, stuff that might entice them to come over for a bite, their heads nice and close to the visitors, who marveled at these incredible animals as they watched them munching away. Well, the story goes that my mom and dad and a couple of friends and my baby brother and me went to the zoo to see those things. I wouldn't have quite been three yet, maybe, in this story. And we walked into the giraffe enclosure on the skyway, and I couldn't get enough of those long-necked, long-tongued, long-legged critters. And I pointed and said two-year-old cute things and squealed with laughter. And when it came time to move on, well, I didn't. My parents did. The other folks with us did. But I stayed behind, unnoticed, for a moment lost. And it must have been just a few seconds before everyone realized I was gone. But I'm a parent now myself, and I've sometimes thought about what they must have felt in that tiny moment, the moment in which they realized that their two-year-old was gone. And I can imagine the million possibilities that ran through their heads before they started running back to the last place they remembered seeing me. I get a little sick in the pit of my stomach, actually, when I think of what that moment might have been like for them. Anyway, as it turns out, I was in the very first place they looked. They came rushing back to the giraffe skyway, and there I was. But in their absence and in my enthusiasm to hang out with those giraffes, I had discovered that those feeding cages on either side of the skyway were, well, they were accessible. All you had to do was squeeze through the fence that separated the visitors from the giraffes and walk a step or two along the beam that connected the feeding cages and squeeze through the bars of the feeding cage itself. I mean, not everyone could do that, but if you were small enough, and it turned out I was, well, you could. And that's where my folks found me, sitting in the hay among the carrots, just waiting for a giraffe to come over and say hello and trapped, as it were. I mean, the worst thing my parents could do is coax me back through the bars of the feeding cage and out onto the bar connecting the cage to the skyway. I mean, that bar was about six inches wide and about 15 feet off the ground. So, as I laughed and pointed, one of my folks just tried to keep me laughing and pointing, while the other went to fetch a keeper who came with a ladder and carefully lifted me out of the hay and met my folks and delivered me to them 
like a fireman who had just rescued me from a burning building, and I'm here to tell you about it. You can bet that my mom held pretty tightly to my hand as we visited the tigers that day and the gorillas, and while getting lost on the giraffe skyway and trapped in the feeding cage, didn't leave me with a penchant for hopping rails and trying to get where I've been asked not to be. I'm happy to enjoy the safety of the guardrail at the cliff's edge or the animal enclosure or the steep trail. I did maintain a healthy fascination with and even an affection for giraffes. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up, including a version of the grasshopper and the ants, the old Aesop's fable, told for you by Donna Washington. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the meals that we share, the songs that we love, the books and films that we remember, and certainly through the tales that get told from teller to listener, passed down sometimes through generations. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories come into our lives is something that we love to do with friends. So I'm super glad to be joined in conversation by our friend, Sheila Arnold, far, far away from us, Sheila, way off in your home and I here in the Appleseed studio, but what a pleasure to have you with us. It's so good to be with you, Sam. Now, listen, before we get started here, I want to let everybody know that they can find a lot of Sheila's work at MissSheila.org. That's M-S-S-H-E-I-L-A dot org. That's her website, and there's all kinds of Sheila Arnold storytelling magic going on there. Sheila, what should we talk about? Well, you know, I was thinking about songs for me. I grew up when my father was not traveling or we weren't overseas. We grew up in Annandale, Virginia, and I went to Second Baptist Church, an all black church. And I was thinking about the music that was in that church that was so important. Uh, when we had our communion Sunday, all the ladies, would, the, the deaconesses would wear white. Uh, all the men were, the deacons were dressed in their black. And, and then after we had communion, they all lined up at the front, the minister, the associate minister, the uh, trustees, the elders, the deaconesses, and the whole church will walk around and shake every person's hand. And as you did it, there was so much time to spend on that. We would sing songs, wait in the water. And um, uh, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. And just uh, these old, old, old spirituals. And I, they would just, they would just cover you. They would just, well, they covered me. They yeah. covered me and, and they would come from somewhere way down deep. And some of these old folk with their, with their voices cracking would, <laughs> would begin to sing. And, and I'm thinking about that because when I'm walking through, Sam, when I'm having a moment and don't even know what to say, those songs come up from long ago. And sometimes, you know, it's just a tune and I don't even know what the tune is. And I'll start humming it or whistling it, mostly humming it. And if I'm around the right person, they'll say, oh, I know what you're singing, baby. And, and they'll start in and I won't even remember the words and they'll know what it is. And I'm just thinking as all this time, you know, things going on and, 
just how much those old deeply seated songs, spirituals and hymns have, have helped me and yeah. guided me, you know, yeah. they just do. Our earliest experiences with music for a lot of us, the music that we heard in church, you know, mm -hmm. and when you find yourself walking along next to somebody who remembers a song and who can, who can spot it at a snatch as you're singing just a snatch of it or humming it. And they say, I know that song suddenly, what they're saying is that they had a, you, you you've you've got a shared experience a shared well of experience and to for for some of that shared experience to be manifest in the in the words and the melodies that crept into your very very earliest childhood memories that can be a very very special and very very powerful connection between two people yeah. right and it's found its way into my um i didn't sing a lot when i first started doing storytelling uh, I sing a lot more now because yeah. people said you need to sing more, but it really was hearing Scott Ainsley sing, I uh, got oil in my, uh, <laughs> got oil in my vessel. Yeah. And I heard that song and went, that's old. I don't understand why I know that. <laughs> and I did. And then I was like, I had to do a story right off of that. I, mm -hmm. I heard that song and I said, I have to tell a story about that. And the next thing I know, I'm having people saying, you need to do more singing. Yeah. And the songs bring stories to me now. They yeah. are they are just a part of who I am and and, and I, I wanna make sure they still live. Yeah. You know, I, I just wanna make sure and, and they still help. Yeah. And I think that sometimes older people think that younger people aren't listening. Yeah. But they really, really are. And they're and they're even connecting what that song means. Yeah. When we sung those songs, it was a joyful time, but it was also a remembrance time. Yeah. And so they come to me in my joyful times, but also in my times of memory and difficulty. Yeah. You know, remembering the difficulty. I think that's just really important. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes those songs go away from you for a long time. You know, sometimes you you they they leave your mind for for sometimes years and years, and then they come back. <laughs> And, and they bring with them, uh, it, it's so easy to access everything that they'd once meant, right? I uh, uh, Listeners to the Appleseed, of course, have heard me talk about songs as as zip files, right? I mean, you, 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 you click on one and suddenly it unfolds into a memory much larger than just the song, right? So true. And I just, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for those songs and the people who sung them and and the memories they bring out and the fact that they're helping people today. Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes those songs are just what people need to hear and they didn't even know they need to hear it yeah. until it comes out. <laughs> and that's that I, I am so blessed to have that as a gift yeah. in my life. Well, I think everybody who told you you should sing more is right. <laughs> you open your mouth and sing it's a good thing it's a good thing and again as you say you've said a number of times in this conversation that those songs still help when we go through tough times sometimes it's not even the lyrical content or the tune of the song sometimes it's the weight of memory and experience that comes along with those things that still as you say still helps so again we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love and it may be that there's an old song running through your head as you've listened to sheila talking about some of these things open your mouth sing that song tell the story around the kitchen table or the living room that kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime 
Khan. Sheila Arnold, such a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, Sam. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with our friend Sheila Arnold. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Anthony Bircher about old friends and keeping those friendships new. Up next on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to be with you today on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a conversation with our friend Sheila Arnold about spiritual songs. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with friends about it. And up next, a story from Anthony Bircher about old friends and some of the ways in which they keep those friendships alive. It's a story called Punishment for Missing Bow Night. Here's Anthony Bircher on The Appleseed. When we were living in Greenville, North Carolina, I met two of the best friends I'll ever have my entire life. Their names were Charles and Dave. Charles had two jobs. He worked at the paper plant early in the morning into the afternoon. He ran a comic book store in the afternoon. So, and Charles knows more about comic books than any human alive, and I knew enough that I could keep up with him. So we became good friends. Our other friend, Dave, he just loved Batman. D- Dave ran the hardware store in town. He loved Batman, spent all of his money on Batman. So we naturally, we became good friends. And within our group, we even gave our group a little name. We were called the Troglodyte Buddies because there wasn't a handsome man in the group. And within the group, we also had our own little nicknames. I was the king. Hey, king, how you doing, king? Good to see you, king. I was the king. I still don't know why they called me king. Dave, his nickname was an obscure reference from Archie Comics. He was the Dadakin, Dadakin Dave. And Charles, he had the best nickname of all of us. He was Professor Chairless, Public Domain, Wolfman, Rumpelstiltskin, Jerry Garcia, Lawrence, and his old theory. That was Charles's name. Most time, we just called him Professor. We had Professor King and the Dadakin. And back then, my wife was campus minister at East Carolina University. And she started something. Every Wednesday night, she had a supper for her students. And this left me alone on Wednesday nights for supper. Now, some of you folks who know me know I enjoy a restaurant called Bojangles. <laughs> a spicy chicken seasoned fries, fresh brewed sweet iced tea. It's the best meal on the planet. Charles and Dave also love Bojangles. So we decided we should create something called Bo Night. Every Wednesday night, we just go to Bo's. But, but being who we were... Every Wednesday we went to Bo's, we decided there was no excuse for missing Bow Night. And then we decided there should be punishments if you missed Bow Night. Now, it was usually Dave who missed. At the hardware store, they had these little sales meetings they had to stay late for. He hated those. So it was usually him that missed. But what would happen? Charles and I would show up at Bojangles. We'd eat our meal, ignore the fact Dave wasn't there. Finish our meal. At the end of the meal, we would take our placemat our plate, our cup, our napkin, our chicken bones, whatever we had, pile it all up, go out to the car, drive over to Home Builders. Dave's car was usually in the employee parking lot, a little hill behind the building. We would drive up to Dave's car. We would open the door. You see, he drove a 1963 Plymouth Valiant, and the locks no longer worked. So we opened the door, threw in the chicken trash, 
that was the punishment for missing bow night. And I understood, Charles understood, if we missed, that would happen to us. It was fair. Now, unfortunately, Dave made a terrible mistake one time. He missed two bow nights in a row. We gathered up all of our chicken trash. We drove over to Home Builders, opened Dave's car, threw in the chicken trash, and then we went to work. First thing I did, went to his gas tank, took off the metal gas tank cover. This is back when they're metal, not plastic. Had three little prongs sticking out from it. I worked it up into his front seat cushion so he would find it when he sat down. And then I turned on the heat, the radio, the wipers, so they'd all go crazy when he started the car. Now, one of the cool things, things about the Plymouth Valiant, back then, each door weighed about the same as a Toyota on its own. They were huge. And what was cool is you could unlock the door, pull it back just slightly. It would still look like it was locked, but it really wasn't. It wasn't hitched at all. Rocks in the hubcaps. We did Dave's car right. We, so Dave comes out of his sales meeting. He's annoyed. He missed Bojangles, opens the door, sees all the chicken trash, throws it in the street, jumps in the front seat, Choing! There's the gas tank. Takes it out. Now he starts cussing me and Charles. He goes over there. He puts the gas tank cover back on. Gets back in his car. Starts his car. Wham, wham. Here comes the wipers. Here comes the heat. Here comes the radio. Turns all that stuff off. He backs out of his space. Back door opens. He gets out. Slams the back door. Starts down the hill. Other back door opens. And Dave, bless his heart, did not think to, to check the front door. Gets to the bottom of the hill where the stop sign was, front door opens. He's just cussing us like crazy. He's heading down the road now. Rocks in the hubcaps take over. Now, we did his car right. However, I do think Dave was a little put out by what we had done. So he made his worst mistake ever. He missed three bow nights in a row. We're sitting there in Bow Dangles enjoying our meal. Charles says, well, I guess we need to head to Home Builders. I says, no, we don't need to go to Home Builders tonight. He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, uh, you know what? A while back, Dave loaned me the keys to his apartment. <laughs> Charles was like, you gave them back though, right? I was like, oh yeah, I gave them back, but I, I made a copy. <laughs> So we drove over to Dave's, opened the door, threw in the chicken trash. Then we went to work. We started hiding things we knew he would be looking for. He loved his TV remote, put it on one side of the room, the batteries on the other, shorts to the bed, all kinds of mischief in his house. And the last thing I did before I left was I took his toilet paper. And the reason I, I chose his toilet paper is because back then, Dave didn't have much money, and he actually stole his toilet paper from Charles's comic book store. So I felt totally okay with this. I took his toilet paper and put it in the freezer. Went home, thought nothing more about it. It's now midnight. I am snoozing away. Phone rings. Oh, where is the toilet paper? Dave, is this you, Dave? Yes, it's me. You know who it is. Where is the toilet paper? Gee, Dave, it sounds like you have some kind of problem. Yes, I have a problem. Gigi needs to wipe. Gigi? Who's Gigi, Dave? Never mind who Gigi is. Where is the toilet paper? And again, once more evil took over my brain. I said, gosh, Dave, I don't know. I think you need to call Charles. He calls Charles, wakes him up. Charles has to be at 5 a, be work 5 a.m. to his work at the paper mill. He calls up Charles. Where is the toilet paper? 
Dave, is this you, Dave? Yes, it's me. They go through the whole thing. Who is Gigi? Charles finally gives it up, tells him where the toilet paper is. Dave goes to the freezer, gets the toilet paper, hands it through the door to the girl like nothing was wrong with it. That was, that was both the last time Dave missed Bow Knight or dated Gigi. <laughs> Anthony Bircher with a story called Punishment for Missing Bow Knight. How about a classic? Now, this is a version of the Aesop's fable, The Grasshopper and the Ants, told for you by the great storyteller Donna Washington. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. When I was a kid, I had a wonderful record that had the ant and the grasshopper on it. It was a Disney record. And it was all about how the ant queen had to give up her power at the end of the story because she wasn't as powerful as one of the ant men. I'm pretty sure that's not what that story was supposed to be about, but that's how it was on the record. And it wasn't until I got older that I thought, I don't know if I like that version of the story. And so then I went and I looked up some more versions and, and I'm an artist. And I didn't like the whole thing with the artist being in trouble either. And I, like many other artists, have sort of monkeyed around with this story so that people see that being an artist doesn't mean you're not working. It's just a different kind of work. And so here is my version of the ant and the grasshopper. Now, the grasshopper was born into a beautiful spring. And there's no telling what he might have wanted to do with his life before the very first time he rubbed those legs together and that beautiful sound came out. Oh, that grasshopper, from the moment he heard it, he was a fiddler. That's what he was. Oh, he sat and just listened to the sound of the music. And he ate everything around him, of course. The leaves, the clover, the flowers. And it was food to be just plucked out of nowhere, and he fiddled. He fiddled and fiddled and fiddled and fiddled. He loved the sound. He fiddled for the birds as they were hatching out of their eggs. He fiddled for all of the frogs as they were getting ready to make little tadpoles. He fiddled for everything buzzing and flying, and one day he was sitting, fiddling, 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 an ant stopped him and said, what are you doing? Don't you realize that, that you are wasting your time? You are wasting the wonderful time of spring. Now is the time to be working, to be gathering in, to, to be preparing for the cold weather. You can't just sit and fiddle. It's ridiculous. And the grasshopper said, oh, okay, I see. Well, you see, it's still spring. There's so much time left, and I will not waste the beautiful day working. I'll work later. And the grasshopper sat back and he began to fiddle. And even though the ants didn't ask him to, he fiddled for them as they worked. Well, spring ended and summer began. And the little birds who had hatched in the spring, well, they were trying out their wings, and the grasshopper fiddled for them. And, and the little tadpoles were losing their tails and hopping out of the water, and the grasshopper fiddled for them. And all the birds and bugs and bees roaming around and living in the beautiful summer air. 
and the grasshopper fiddled for all of them, and he especially fiddled for himself. Oh, he was getting so good at it. And one day as he was sitting, fiddling and fiddling and feasting on clover, he heard, Are you still fiddling? Don't you realize the summer is going? Soon there will not be anything to eat. We ants have been doing the right thing. We have been working and working and setting aside things. You have been fiddling. Do you not see that you're going to be in trouble very, very soon? And the grasshopper said, ah, ants. Some of you work so hard and you don't seem to be enjoying yourselves. Me, I'm working too and I am most definitely enjoying myself. Uh, I'll help you out if you like. I'll fiddle for you while you work around, but but I'll worry about putting things aside later. Uh, It's too nice a day to work like you work. And the grasshopper sat back and fiddled some more. Well, the fall came in eventually, all the leaves turning colors and falling off the trees, and the birds were packing up their nests and getting their luggage and getting ready to leave town, and the grasshopper fiddled for them as they left, and the frogs were getting ready to wallow down into the mud and go into hibernation fairly soon, and the grasshopper fiddled for them. All the animals who were leaving to go to warmer climes, the grasshopper fiddled as they packed. Those who were going to stay and were preparing themselves for the winter, he fiddled for them. And as he was fiddling and fiddling and fiddling, he heard, Ha! 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 You're going to be in trouble really soon. You are going to be in so much trouble. Don't you realize? The winter is almost here and you have done nothing. It's not true, said the grasshopper. I have worked up some beautiful music. I have played my heart out. I have given so many concerts. I think I've done a lot. Nothing useful. I think I was doing some useful things. I don't think you are. Well, you you can think what you like. And uh, I know you've got a lot of work to do because you're an ant. Tell you what, I'll fiddle for you. And the grasshopper began to fiddle. Well, this went on. Of course you know what happened. A morning came when the grasshopper woke up. Ooh, ooh, it was freezing. Ooh, so cold, and the wind whistled past him, and, and, and thin flakes of snow began to fall, and, and he bit into a blade of grass, and oh, no, pit, pit. it was old and withered and dead. There was nothing to eat. He was so cold, his fiddle didn't even work. He walked across the landscape, trying to find some place to hide, his belly going empty and grumbling. And then he tripped over a little pile of snow, and he cleared it away, and underneath he found an ant hole. And he knocked upon the door. And a little ant opened it up. He had a big mug of hot chocolate and a Hawaiian shirt. He said, Oh, it's you. I remember you. You're that grasshopper who spent all summer and all spring and all fall playing. Well, look at you now. Look at you now. Hmm. The grasshopper said, could you spare something, anything, a little, I'm freezing. Could, could you spare something? Well, I don't know if I can spare something. I'll have to ask. And he closed the door. The grasshopper waited, and eventually several other ants came. They took the grasshopper underneath the ground. And there, the queen was waiting for him. She said, I've been hearing about you all year. In the spring, when we were working, you were playing that silly fiddle. 
And in the summer, when we were working, you were still playing that silly fiddle. And in the fall, while we worked, you were playing that silly fiddle. Well, now we are at our leisure, and you will work for us. And all the ants began to cheer. And so the grasshopper worked in the kitchens preparing meals, and he waited at the tables, and he brought food out to everybody. And one night, in the silence after everyone had eaten, the grasshopper began to play his fiddle. And the music livened up the anthill. Some of them listened. Some of them danced. Some of his tunes were catchy. Some of them were sad. It got so that they asked him to play almost all the time, and he obliged he played for anyone who wanted to hear him. He went into the nurseries and played for the little ant babies. He played in the great hall. He played for everyone until the day the ants escorted him up and opened the ant hill, and spring was in the air. As he was leaving, one of the ants said, Will you come back next year? Next winter, will you play for us again? And the grasshopper grinned, and he said, Oh, you can count on it. And that is the story of the grasshopper and the ants. The ancient story from Aesop, the grasshopper and the ants, that old fable made new for you by Donna Washington here on the Appleseed. Let's go to Ireland now with Liz Weir and a story from a collection of tales called The Glen of Stories. This tale is called The Boy with Knowledge. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. In the olden days in Ireland, young men and women would go off for six months higher leaving their friends, leaving their families, to work for a stranger, a master who might have been good or bad. There was one such young man who'd done his six months hire and was trudging home on a wet, dreary night. All he wanted was a roof over his head and something warm to eat. Now this young fellow was from a place in County Tyrone, the name of Alton Yah, and the people who lived there were supposed to have great knowledge. And as he walked along the road, he saw the lights of a farmhouse up a long lane. He turned into the lane, and who should he meet but another young man coming down? He said, don't be going near that house. There's a wicked woman in that house. Well, the boy from Alton Yah thought he didn't want any arguments. It was too late at night. But he saw for Nance the house, a hay shed, and he thought to himself, maybe that'll do me just as well as any bed. And he climbed up into the shed and bedded down in the hay and straw. And from his position, he could see down into the farmhouse. There indeed was the farmer's wife, a very good-looking young woman she was, and there was a young man with her. And she was being powerful good to him. She'd set him up a big plate of cooked meats, a rough cast apple tart set on the table, and there was a bottle of what looked suspiciously like whiskey. The young fella up in the barn hadn't had a good meal for days, and he was drooling with the hunger, when all of a sudden... He heard the crunch of cartwheels on the gravel lane. The pair in the kitchen heard it as well. The young woman threw her hands up to her face, grabbed hold of the young man, pushed him into a barrel beside the fire and draped the barrel with a blanket. Then didn't she lift the plate of meat, put it up on top of a press, lifted the apple tart, hid it behind the sofa and took the bottle of whiskey and put it behind the curtain. 
and stepped as nicely as you like over to the door, opening it to her own husband. Now, the boy in the barn, he had the knowledge. He knew what was going on in that house, and he stepped down to the door and gave it a rap. The farmer came. He asked could he have a bed for the night in exchange for a day's work the next day, and the farmer was a kind man, brought him in, set him down at the table. All there is to eat is potatoes and buttermilk, he said. The young man smiled to himself. It'll do the very best. And the two boys started into the peeling of the spuds. Now, if you want to compliment a farmer, the best way to do it is to admire his potatoes. We balls of flowers, says the young fella. And, of course, the farmer was delighted. But he said, do you know what would go well with these? A nice bit of cooked meat. Ha, ah, said the farmer. I'm afraid there's nothing in this house, only the potatoes and buttermilk. Wait till I tell you, says the young man. I'm from a place called Altania in Tyrone. Sometimes all we have to do is think of a thing, and we can magic it up. Let me try. And he covered his eyes with his hand, and he said, Put your hand on top of that press and see what you find. The farmer jumped up, and sure enough, there was the plate of meat, and the two fellows started to eat it. The young wife peering and looking and wondering what was going on. When they'd finished it, the young fellow said, I have an awful sweet tooth. Would you have anything home-baked in the house? That looks like a woman could bake. Och, my wife, she's away off to her bed, said the farmer. She hasn't baked this long time. I don't know what's up with her. The young fellow said, let me try this magic again. Go over there and put your hand down behind the sofa and see what you get. And sure enough, there was the apple tart and the two of them into it. I've a wild thirst on me. There wouldn't be anything stronger than the buttermilk, good and all as it is. No, said the farmer, not a thing. Try it again, says the young fellow, and he covered his eyes with his hand. Try there behind the curtain. And sure enough, magic. Out the farmer came with a bottle of whiskey. Good Bush Mills whiskey. The two boys started to drink down the bottle. Now a funny thing happens when you get two strangers meeting over a bottle of whiskey. They either fight, or, in this case, they started to become all palsy-walsy, telling each other their secrets. And the farmer started to tell all about the problems he was having with his wife. Maybe the young man could help. She wasn't as kind as she used to be. She wasn't as loving. There was a distance between them. The young fellow said, Maybe I can sort out your trouble. And he put his hand over his eyes and he said, I know what's wrong. You do, said the farmer. I know what's wrong and I can rid you of all your troubles. Anything, said the farmer, anything. He said, Listen, the devil's in your house. What, said the farmer? The devil's in your house, said the young man. Do as I tell you, we'll get rid of him for you. Now, he said, watch this. And the young fellow stood up and he picked up the poker and he picked up the tongs and he pushed them into the heart of the grisha, right into the open fire. And he heated them up till they were white hot and he reached the poker to the farmer. He said, watch this. And didn't he pull the cover off the barrel and plunged in the tongs and the farmer plunged in the poker and the young man hiding in the barrel came up screaming and yelling out through the kitchen like the devil himself. Well, said the young fellow, that's solved your problem. I've got rid of the devil for you. The farmer didn't know what to do to thank him. Put him upstairs into the good room with a big brass bed and the feather bolsters. The young man had a great night's sleep. And the next day when he came down, the wife was all attendance, set in front of him a big ulster fry. There was sausages, there was fudge, there was soda bread, bacon, fried egg, a cholesterol special, a heart attack on a plate. And the young fellow gulped it down and the farmer stood up, put his hand deep down into the pocket and brought out a big white five-pound note. 
That was more money than the young fellow had had in a six months' hire. That's for getting rid of the devil. No trouble, said the boy. I'll be on my way home. And he headed out of the house and down the lane. When he got to the foot of the lane, he heard a rustling in the bushes. And up like a bird from the bush came the young wife, put her hand into her apron pocket, brought out another five-pound note and said, That's for not telling my husband on me. And that's my story. Liz Weir with a story called The Boy with Knowledge here on The Appleseed. How about we wrap up today with a little cowboy poetry. It's from a collection called Shalako from our friend Joe Harrington. It's a piece called The Fence, and you're sure to love it here on The Appleseed. Me and Slim and Stumpy Stokes were on the trail one day when Stokes reined in and bent our ear with something he had to say. He pointed yonder with his chin sidelong and spit at you. He leaned an elbow across the saddle and said, that there must be new. I tracked his gaze across the plains where the grass was tall and good beneath the sky of azure blue to where a wire fence stood. The scene near took my breath away. To describe it, I had no words. The stream, the grass and flowers and there in flight were birds. But something in that stunning scene was wrong and out of place, kind of like an ugly scar across a pretty face. But there it was for all to see why Stumpy took offense, for there in all that beauty stood a crooked, ugly fence. It leaned a bit and twisted as it ambled out of sight, and the wire was loose and sagging on posts not put in right. Well, Stumpy took his hat off and he frowned like he's mad, but when he slapped it across his leg, I knew that this was bad. We hired that crew from town, he growled, cause they had a better bid. They said they'd put us all to shame. Well, it sure looks like they did. They built that fence in half the time, and now they're on their way off to trash some other job, and of course, expect their pay. As Stumpy turned to ride away, he clenched his teeth in tight. We'll have to tear it down, he said, and come back and build it right. Well, he topped the ridge before I spoke, because I was in a state of shock. What? Rebuild the fence, I cried. That hillside's most all rock. We'll dig holes for weeks, I said, with a furrow in my brow. And what's it matter anyway? That thing'll still hold cows. Then Slim glared at me in pure disgust. That selfish thinking, lad. Son, that fence, it shames the ranch. It makes us all look bad. Slim then jawed for half an hour about honor and taking pride, about the value of a handshake and what it means inside. He said, I've seen it coming. These young, smart aleck fools don't have a speck of honor or regard for decent rules. They see no need to do their best just cause they said they would. They got no use for honesty or doing right or good. Then he pointed west to another fence. It stood tight and straight and new. He said, now we built that fence six years ago and Stumpy bossed the crew. He promised it by Christmas and when Stumpy gave his word, Nothing short of Judgment Day would change what we all heard. 
Sure, the work was hard, just like the ground from dawn till setting sun, but we finished like we said we would, and we're still proud of what we've done. Now, there it stands, all straight and tight, but it's more than just a fence. It's a tribute to what we said we'd do and what we've all done since. It's a lesson, son, you gotta learn before you can be a man. You give your best to all you do and on your word you stand. So when Stumpy says we'll tear it down, well, you just take it like a man. And when we put it up again, you do the best you can. Then someday you'll ride up here with some other wet-nosed kid. And when he asks you why it matters, well, you can show him what you did. The Fence, a tale by Joe Harrington. And, of course, our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.